Color Nerds Comic Book Reviews. This is episode 95. I'm Matt, and I'm joined by one of the other nerds, Ryan. Hello. Christina's been trapped in the dark multiverse, trying to save Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Chris is off searching for the Infinity Stones, because what else is she going to be doing? She's teaming up with the Guardians, right? She's Yep. Right now, she's got a Nova helmet on. <laughs> the weekly barrage of comics and comic-related news can be scary, so we're here to let you know what to check out and what to avoid. We read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them as well as anything else that's popped up in the world of comics. There's a chance of spoilers, so if you are worried about them, take a break now and go read the pull list, and then come on back. This week we'll be reviewing The Jetsons number 1, Batman number 34, The Avengers 693, Captain America number 695, Spider-Man number 234, Guardians Galaxy number 146, and Iron Fist number 74. On Pull, Pass, or Complain on the Internet, we've got The Gravediggers Union number 1, Batman the Devastator number 1, Power Pack number 63, and Dead Man number 1. Stop the presses! This just in! News from the bullpen! Alright, so what I wanted to talk about news-wise this week, when we're reviewing comics, when they get really weird or dark, we often compare them to the Twilight Zone. And CBS All Access just announced that they're rebooting the Twilight Zone with Jordan Peele, who you probably know from both Key and Peele, and you also probably know him from Get Out, which was a pretty great horror movie that he directed, which was kind of twisted, which tells me he probably will be good for the Twilight Zone. So CBS All Access, it's a subscription service. Right now they have Star Trek Discovery, which is really great. They're also, in a couple months, going to have a new series from College Humor that will probably be pretty good. And then they're also going to have Twilight Zone. So they're adding more content. So I think as they do that, it'll become more worthwhile. For me, personally, I really like Star Trek Discovery, so it's worth it for me. But you'll have to make that decision for yourself whether it's worth it. I'm hoping the Twilight Zone will be excellent and creepy. I think it will. He's got he's got a good sort of for imagination on him. Um, and I know he doesn't write it. He's the host. But he'll probably have some input or some writing on there. I know Rod Serling was. Is he the producer or is he... He's, I, he's, I believe, the executive producer and he might will also be the host. Okay, hopefully he's the executive producer that actually does work on the show and not the executive producer that just is somewhat related to the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the only reason really he would want to be involved in that is he likes the kind of dark, twisty stuff that you can see in his in Get Out, his project that he did, right? That that same kind of fucked up twist ending kind of And that Shyamalan idea. good. Yeah, good Shyamalan. <laughs> like, like you know, Sixth Sense or Unbreakable, not like almost everything else he's ever done. <laughs> I I like most Shyamalan movies, um, except for like Avatar. <laughs> Other than that, I think they're all they're decent enough. I, I'm but... sorry, what what Avatar you did? <laughs> I, what are you talking about? I, oh, it's, that pisses me off so much. That was like one of the greatest cartoons or just TV series of all time, and they fucked it so bad. Like literally, I, th- I think it has like the widest re- like canyon between the source material and the end product. I mean, like the the eight or the nineties Captain America movie was, like, more accurate than that fucking thing. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Ouch, but accurate. (laughs) It would have been fine if they hadn't called it The Last Airbender, and none of the characters... Well, the good news is that none of the characters were named the same thing as the cartoon characters, because they couldn't pronounce a fucking person's character. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like you have a source material you can go back and listen to. (laughs) I know, like, hours of it. (laughs) All right, on to comics. (laughs) Every episode, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I Am That Nerd, and my pick goes to The Jetsons number 1. Our companion song is 1999 by Prince, because the song is about waking up and discovering it's the end of the world. But basically looking at that fact and deciding that they should, instead of stressing and fighting and going to war and everything, let's party it out. Uh, I feel this directly (laughs) speaks to the plot of Jetsons number 1, which we'll hear about below. What do you think about this particular song? Do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I think it's good because they are trying to have fun. I mean, they don't know it's the end of the world yet, um, but you do get to see that little slice of teenage life in there that's kind of interesting. Yeah, the teenagers are all, you know, being teenagers. George is doing what George does. You know, he's constantly working, but at least now he's not literally a button pusher uh, in, in this <laughs> book, uh, which I liked. And Jane is apparently like head of the UN or something. <laughs> that was the biggest stretch. <laughs> that was a, like... Well, okay. I guess that works. That's cool. Um, it was All right. interesting. But let's let's go ahead and take a listen. Let's party. I was 
So we have The Jetsons number one by DC Comics. Meet the Jetsons, written by Jimmy Palmati. Pencils and inks by Pierre Brito. Colors by Alex Sinclair. We discover in this issue, and, and I guess it's my fault for not reading the one shot, but I'm assuming we discovered last time. But we discover in this book, I did, that the human race has already survived basically one doomsday, and now they live in the future of floating cities that are above an earth that's been flooded due to our poor handling of the earth. I mean, it's not like we had warning that there was climate change or there was going to be flooding or the polar ice caps were going to melt or anything. It just came out of nowhere. I know, it's crazy. No warnings, no science, no nothing. Right, but what did come out of nowhere was an asteroid that was, well, it's not nowhere, it's space, but it was mostly water, so when it hit the earth, it melted, and then, because there's not technically enough water in the ice caps to flood the entire planet but it flooded quite a bit of it but then this gigantic asteroid that was mostly ice hit the earth melted and then it flooded just fucking everything so it's basically a big everybody calls earth the blue planet but now it really is the blue planet uh and uh the asteroid had a strange metallic core which sunk to the bottom basically it's now a bit beyond that and we find out that there's another visitor that's coming in fast from the other side of the galaxy and it's quite a bit bigger and more dangerous and we can't stop it or escape it due to already having used up all of our our uh, available technology to get off the earth and it's going to just destroy everything that's orbiting the earth and everything on the earth like basically humanity's fucked because we didn't invest in going to other planets all of this is happening right now is, is at the same time, you know, all of this is happening and only Jane knows about it because in this strange Jetsons future, Jane is not just a, you know, a housewife. She has become like the head of the UN or something. They don't exactly give her title, I don't think, but she's giving a presentation in the International Space Station, which I find is a funny name because you could see ships and other things floating up there, but it, it's the quote-unquote International Space Station, but she's giving a presentation about what they've discovered and the what's going to happen. They're going to still try to fix things, but odds are everybody's fucked. But at all the t- same time all this is happening, it's George Jackson's 40th birthday in a couple days, so they're think? planning Man, this a one- party... But I'm betting that story-wise, the party and the gigantic thing are going to hit, and I don't know, Kazoo's going to jump out and stop it or something? <laughs> Who knows? This one was a real surprise to me. I read the one before this where you see their grandmother basically commit like an assisted suicide and transfer her consciousness into the the maid robots. And that one was really deep and touching, too. And this one is the same thing. Like, this reminds me a lot of when we read The Flintstones, how insightful, like, politically that was. This one, I think, in the same way, takes those old, familiar things you're with and uses them in the way that myth is useful for to talk about bigger issues. Like, they really go after mortality, the afterlife, the environment. I mean, they talk about a lot of big ideas in here, and it's amusing It's funny. The characters are a hundred times more complex and compelling than the cartoon characters. It's just surprisingly good. Even back then, it was still, it was commentary, but it wasn't as deep a commentary as this is. I completely agree with you on that. Uh, I mean, this is, comic books are, at one point, they're supposed to be just there to entertain. And, you know, at some levels, they're there for kids. But, like, the best cartoons out there, they're entertaining and there's something that you can just chuckle at. But at the same time, they also, they make you think. And they have stuff for all generations. And this one is not, I wouldn't call this one really a kid's book, right? It's the Jetsons, but the people who really last watched the Jetsons are, well, they're about the same age as your Jetson here. (laughs) Because kids today, they've tried to reboot the Jetsons and the Flintstones and stuff like that. And it just, it fails. Because their time is not exactly past when you see stuff like this. I would love a cartoon like this. And, and the same with the yeah. Flintstones. I would love a cartoon like that, like a maybe an Adult Swim cartoon that are, is kind of along those lines. This is a it's, I, it was a surprise. I was thinking I was going to pick one of the other books as the book I liked. And then all of a sudden, The Jetsons is my pick. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, it's surprising because it takes these older cartoons, same with the Flintstones as well, and it gives them a very modern sensibility without making it, like, ironically hip or dark. You know, it's it's still relevant to it. Like, the example I was thinking about when I was reading this is the very idea of being, like, in these cities up in the clouds. In the 1960s cartoon, that was kind of like an aspirational goal. It was like, look what we did. It's so great. You know, we're we're in space. How amazing. And now it's like, oh, things are so fucked, we're in space, you know? Like, we had to escape 
the apocalypse down below. So that sense of the two times is interesting to me that you have the 60s hopeful one and here it's kind of like dark triumph that we have. So I think the Jetsons was just really, really good. The art's good. The writing's good. It's got lots of metaphors and symbolism. It's also exciting. Like you have sequences with Elroy underwater, like trying to recover like lost artifacts uh, in this like toxic soup that's going to kill him if he's down there for too long. Like it's not all think pieces. You know, there are exciting little action sequences too. So overall, it kind of has everything. It does. It's surprisingly so too and and really the even the classic show they poked at us fucking everything up because if they kept like raising the city above the clouds because that was the whole reason we were in floating clouds in the past was that it was just smog but like in the 60s that was all they worried about was oh look los angeles has got so much smog in it yeah it the pollution you can see yeah but in this it's this ultimately kind of the same thing the pollution fucked everything up but it's not a cloud they have to keep rising above it's what that smog and, you know, a hundred years of that have done, you know, maybe, I know, speculation. It's not like 99% of the scientists are saying that that's what happened or anything, but, you know, <laughs> so uh, I just think it's smart. It's, it's, and, and Jimmy Palmati is a really good writer outside of yes. this. So it, this, it's a smart book. It's art is fitting. It's not, you know, it's not the greatest comic book art ever, but it fits this story perfectly. The designs are great. Everything about this, I just, I really, really liked this book. It was just so good. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, too. I'm going to give it four and a half rise and shine. Damn it. Rise and shine, Georgie boy. I like this a lot, too. I will give it for his boy, Elroy. Nice. Very nice. So I'm going to take us over to Batman number 34 from DC Comics, Rules of Engagement Part 2, written by Tom King, pencils and inks by Joel Jones, colors by Jordi Belair. So in this one, the cat and the bat are fighting and flirting their way across the, the desert uh, kingdom that they're trapped in, fighting waves and waves of, min- of minions that are trying to stop them from reaching their final destination. Where they're try- You find out what they're actually doing there this time. They're trying to reach the woman who Cat took the blame for all the murders that took place uh, when they wiped out the, the crime family. So they're trying to find her and get her to confess. So while this is all going on, they're battling. We get kind of a touching interlude that I really liked with Superman, Damian Wayne, and Dick Grayson on the border. Uh, it really highlights the family and the Bat family. thought that little interlude was really great. Then we finally get a chilling and thrilling battle between Batman and Talia al Ghul, where we're shown that Batman is absolutely no match for Talia, and she's earned the title of the most dangerous woman in the world. It then ends with a devastatingly effective cliffhanger between Catwoman and Talia. Get your swords, right meow. I really liked this one. Um, what did you think of it? Whoever says meow one more time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. It was it was real close, but I mean, you know, it's Tom King. So, <laughs> <laughs> always uh, good. He's always, like, literally, I have not been disappointed by Tom King. Uh, I, I thought it was really good. It had the humor that he seems to put into the Bat books. It had really fantastic action. The art on this is it's it's again it's it's a departure from who did the oh pencils and inks by Joel Jones. It's a departure from uh, Mikhail Janin, who I've said uh, is the perfect fucking Batman artist. But it's still really good, and it's really good for this story because it works with Talia like her designs and the materials that she wear, the inking, the coloring and the, the art just look really good. And his like black leather suit, it looks, it's like as fitting as that was for that story. The art in this is, is fitting for this story. Like the facial, like the, the, the acting and the, yeah, it, everything, the, every, the faces look right. They're getting the right expressions on their faces and everything. I, I think it's just really good and it's just action packed, but it moves at a perfect pace. It's not too fast or too slow. It gets a good story out there. It gets humor. It gets darkness. Uh, it's got really great designs. Uh, it's a, a great package. Yeah, I really liked it. I mean, starting from the very beginning where Batman and Catwoman are fighting these like waves of minions, like the minions are really no threat to them. So Tom King uses that space to show them talking to each other. And it's really more about their relationship and 
like flirtation that's going on as they're taking on these waves of minions. Like I thought Carissa would have really liked that part of the book because she really likes when they do the cat and the bat relationship with each other. And they gave this the right amount of space for that to, to happen in. Yeah, and you were talking about the Bat family earlier. This is a little bit deeper even than the Bat family because you remember that this is Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne. Those two were Batman and Robin themselves. Right. Right. There's a there's a part where they're sitting there and they're talking and they're like, you know, we're together until the end. Like, I thought that was yeah, he said, really was cool. You and me, kiddo, from the beginning all the way to the end. I was like, oh, shit. I lo- I, that's part of what I love about Tom King is he respects the material and the book. It's not just, oh, I'm writing Batman. That's awesome. He's like, literally, he's writing Batman, but keeping Batman in mind. Like, Batman's more than just this thing from, like, he just got a job on. And then I like when when Superman kind of intercedes in this and is like, you kids can't go any further. And I love it when Damian Wayne is basically telling Superman, like, I'll fucking kill you. Like, everyone else is dumb. They do it with kryptonite. He's like, I'll summon a demon to rip your heart out. He's like, I believe you, kid. Now, don't go any further. Yeah, it was hilarious how he said it, too, because he's like, chat with some demon, blah, 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 my soul, blah, blah, blah. Presto, change it, abracadabra. You're dead. <laughs> Which is true. He's with like, Superman. you know, John wouldn't really go adventuring with you if you killed his dad. He's like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that part. And then I like when Superman, like, flies away, and they're standing there, and he's like, you know he can still see us, right? And they're like, damn it. <laughs> I just thought it was a really neat little human moment there with all three of those characters interacting with each other. The, the thing is, if everybody could write like that, then people would get comics and why their comics are so awesome. It's it's that sort of thing. It's the, like, that is what I think Marvel has against, uh, like over DC or had as the, the big selling point about Marvel in the 60s. And to be fair, Stan Lee is not the great... I mean, he's the biggest dialoguer in the world. Like, his dialogue is always huge and boisterous and all that. Right. But he's not really a very human dialoguer. But the whole point of Marvel was that it was, like, realistic stories. Right. And these were... They're putting them into real-life things. And then they say stupid shit, because that's what Stan does. But it's, <laughs> like, big-sounding stupid shit, right? And and DC was always like, I am Superman. I am here to save you, and then I will fly off. I will go hide in my fortress of solitude, and every once in a while, I will be Clark Kent, and I will do some things. I'm a reporter, but you never see me doing reporter things. I am Superman. Ha, ha, ha. And then DC discovered, oh, maybe that's not the greatest idea in the world. But there's certain writers like Tom King that just can write how you're supposed to write a comic, and this is perfect. Yeah. And then not only do you get all of that character interaction you also, when Talia arrives on the scene, it is chilling how masterful and in control of the situation she is. Like, you know, she and Batman are going to fight. And she there's this part where she's telling Batman, like, do you have a sword? You should get one. And then she defeats him with basically just one move and, like, stabs him in the back and paralyzes him. And he's lying on the ground with a sword sticking out of him. And you're like, oh, my God. And then when I was talking about that devastating cliffhanger, that's where she's, you know, pointing her sword at Catwoman and asking her the same question, which is just chilling. Like the one thing that I the one issue I do kind of have is they're trying to put Catwoman and Talia, it feels like to me, almost on like equal footing with each other. And I'm sorry, Catwoman is not the equal of Talia al Ghul when it comes to to combat. And I just think she's going to get wrecked really badly. To be fair to Batman, he had just fought off an entire army of, like, tongueless desert assassins after walking through the fucking desert in leather. So... That's true. Talia did have a foot up on him, but... Well, and that was part of her plan, too, is they said that these minions are not here to defeat us. They're here to tire us out. Yep. And you see them, like, lying on the ground, like, gasping like they've just done, like, a CrossFit workout or something. Like, they are exhausted and wrecked by the time she arrives. But to carry on your point, Catwoman on her best day, is not really enough to beat Talia. And she's got the same uh, handicap that Batman had. So uh, I think she's still going to come out on top, but I think it's more that Talia's going to let her win. Yeah, I think that when they fight, it's probably going to be more about the dialogue. Like, I'm I'm sure Talia wants to know why Batman has chosen this woman. Yeah, and are you going to be a good stepmom? Yeah, we'll probably do that thing where you learn about someone by fighting them, you know? So I think she's going to in a weird way, play cat and mouse with the cat, you know? Nice. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But in all, all in all, with this book, I was very satisfied. 
Yep. I really like this one. I would give this one four and a half get your sword. Nice. I'm going to give it four and a half cat. I may be wearing a leather bat costume, but do I look crazy enough to make fun of you? <laughs> Wise man. <laughs> Off to space. Space, 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 space. With the Guardians of the Galaxy, number 146. Published by Marvel Comics, The Evil Has Landed. Written by Jerry Duggan, pencils and inks by Marcus Two, colors by Ian Herring. The Guardians are infiltrating a new Nova Corps to try and clean up the organization. Uh, there have been some black market dealings going down, and the leader of the Corps, who is a human, has asked them to come in and help get things back on course. While helping a derelict ship and its survivors, we find out that it's been infected with the Bork, um, zombies, uh, Ultrons. The Guardians are then marooned on this ship by the other Nova Corps members who run for the hills at the first sign of trouble. It's pretty... Uh, it's kind of like a, it felt a little bit Gotham-y to me, like the first season of Gotham where, what's this, Gordon was coming in to try to clean things up. It's like the core is just getting started, but there's a lot of like kind of black markety stuff going on in the book, and the the Guardians are kind of here to, to get in there. Though they do discover during this whole thing that Richard Ryder, the, the Nova, our Nova, is, is out there. Besides that, the book was kind of, it, the Guardians series keeps doing this, and it might have a it might be a, once we stand back and see the whole first 30 books or so it might all make sense as one big story but it seems like a big diversion away from the main storyline which is yep. hunting down the infinity gems and it's it's the beat that this book has had it's like hey this is what we're doing but first let's do this and they keep doing that in the series and it's a little fucking annoying at this point i think they should just have a nova book <laughs> Yeah, that's what I felt like when I was reading this. I felt like I was reading a Nova Corps book, not a Guardians of the Galaxy book. Like, a Nova Corps book that the Guardians were guest starring in. Right. You know, like, the parts with Rocket were actually pretty amusing, I thought, and worked really well, where he's, you know, finding people who are basically committing crimes and trying to commit his own crimes in the Nova Corps. Like, I thought that part was funny, and that was the part that felt a little bit like Guardians, but other than that, this is a Nova book. And I don't really give a flying fuck about the Novas, so... I like the Novas, but it, not in a Guardians book, right? Yeah. If you want to do Gar Nova stories, then go do a Nova miniseries where they're cleaning up the core or something without the Guardians. Because the Guardians have some shit to do. Yes. We, we need to fucking move on. Because like, right? like you were saying, in the previous arc, we got kind of this glimpse of the cosmic, right? Of these infinity stones and the gardeners and the collectors and like all of this much larger world they're being introduced to. And it feels like they're being dragged back down into the petty shit, you know? And I want them, like you're saying, to be out looking for the infinity stones. And maybe that's what this is going to end up being. It's going to tie in all together somehow, but I was not overly impressed with this one. It wasn't terrible. It's a competently done story for what it is, but I don't get why they keep diverting this, other than the fact that The Guardian seems to be the only cosmic book that Marvel is doing, right? So it seems right. like they need to shove stuff into here, but I'm like, that's even more of a reason for you guys to bring back the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah. You, you then, you can do the Fantastic Four or the Future Foundation. That can be your cosmic showcase, or just do cosmic showcase, or Marvel cosmic showcase, or Marvel showcase, or... Something like that, where it's like an anthology book, and stop fucking up the Guardian story. It's getting annoying. Yeah, and I mean, I did, when they were on the ship, I did appreciate kind of the alien vibe they were going for, of being on the ship with the monsters in there, and, you know, they're like slamming doors on these Ultron monsters and like cutting off their arms and stuff. Like, that part gave a nice sense of like, this claustrophobic, you know, place that you're in. And I did like when all the Novas, because they're all terrible recruits now, split and ran like i thought that was pretty good but again it just doesn't scream guardians of the galaxy to me yeah it it, it literally like hey, did you ever read the top 10 it was an al moore book for abc I think, america's best comics it was basically a, a police procedural but it was like the whole department kind of thing right uh this this feels like 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 we keep saying this is a nova book i i, I have some interest in a nova book i like the nova core i like Police procedurals, for some reason, when they're done well and they're they're good, I don't like them all. But I, you know, like I love Gotham, and it's basically it started as a police procedural, and I like the first season. Now that it's becoming more of the origin of Batman story, like it's supposed to fucking be, uh, it, it's I, I like it even more. But 
you know, I, I like a good police procedural. And I think a Nova book that's not superhero stuff, but it's a police book like Top Ten was, I think it would do well, right? And that's where you tell this story. And you can have Ultron and stuff like this, and you can have the Guardians show up every once in a while. But I, I just, I felt, it felt off. And I don't, I don't think a Nova book on its own would do very well. Because he's never been a super popular character, and when they showed the Nova Corps in the Marvel Universe, they went out of their way to make them not awesome, right? To make them kind of lame. So, what are you going to sell it to people as, you know? That, that's why I think... See, the, the thing that I think that the Marvel movies do well is that they take superhero stuff and they attach it to another type of movie. Mm-hmm. Like, like, one of the best Marvel movies out there is... Uh, the Winter Soldier, right? That's exactly what I was going to say. Is the best Marvel movie. The Winter but that's so- like a seventy spy Thor thriller. Yet. It's a seventy spy thriller. That that's exactly right. And like the original Captain America, which wasn't really well loved, the original Captain America was a period piece about World War Two, right? Right. And that's that's its strong point. The fact that it's Captain America in this set piece is supposed to be a side note, right? Captain America is it's called Captain America: The First Avenger, but it's a, as a movie, it's this other thing. Whenever they just try to make superhero movies to be superhero movies, that's when people seem to not be able to connect with it because they're connecting with this larger-than-life but familiar story, like the 70s spy thriller. It just, everything about that movie clicked. And I think, like, the the Thor movie, which, uh, you know, I'm, I will be seeing, I just haven't seen yet. It saw it last night. Hitting, <laughs> it seems to be hitting everybody's points, but from what I've read about it and what I've seen from like the trailers and stuff, it's like a a buddy road movie with superhero shit and it's a comedy. It's, it's an eighties uh buddy cop kind of comedy, basically. Right. It's Turner and Hooch. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh it's very, very funny. It's Marvel's comedy. Right. But that's like this book here or not this book, but like the Nova Corps could be that. It could be a little bit comedic, police procedural not just focusing on Richard Ryder. They always just do Richard Ryder, which is just Nova, just a dude who blasts. I mean, I mean he's cannibal. No- Nova Corps and Green Lantern are basically the same book. Right. Same basic idea. Right. You know? So, like, if you can do it for one, you can do it for, like, the other, right? So, and the Lan- but the, the Green Lanterns, they suffer from some of the same problems that the Nova books suffer from, right? But when they do it well, it works out well. When they don't do it well, it's just another superhero book with a bunch of green people flying around. This would be a bunch of gold and blue people flying around. But if you do it well and you do it as, let's do a police procedural comic, right? A little bit of humor, some action, some crime. It, there might even be crime inside our own organization. And you pick like a couple of guys to stand out. And those guys are like the main characters of the story. There's like a small ensemble cast of characters. I think you could do that well. I don't so, think that you should do that inside this other fucking book. Right. So, I mean, that's how we wish they had done Guardians and maybe had done a Nova book. But what did you actually give this particular Guardians of the Galaxy book? So, this particular Guardians of the Galaxy book, uh, it was... I'm going to give it three and a half uh, something or other. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to find something. There we go. I'm going to give it three and a half. Ultron will overwrite the entire galaxy. I will give it two and a half... I hate Earth. (laughs) Who doesn't? I mean, really. So I think this next book does what we were talking about, the good things that Marvel does. We're talking about Spider-Man number 234 from Marvel Comics, Sinister Six Reborn Part 1, written by Brian Michael Bendis, pencils and inks by Oscar Bazaldua, and colors by Justin Ponser. So it's not easy being Miles Morales, balancing teenager life with superpowers, This legacy title takes us back to the foundations of Spider-Man, really ultimate Spider-Man, as we get teenage romance problems and the remaking of some of Spider-Man's oldest foes, the Sinister Six. Plus gold balls. Can't forget gold balls. The mutant hero we deserve. Well, wait, that. The mutant hero we don't deserve, but that we need. While Miles, Gonke, and gold balls are talking about girls on the roof, the Sinister Six is reformed by the Prowler in a stolen Iron Spider suit, returning us to the villain we first saw way back in Ultimate Spider-Man number one, taking us full circle, and I feel really living up to what Legacy is supposed to be. I think this is a really good example of what Legacy should be, 
because I don't feel like this is a continuation of previous story arcs or one that we're picking up in the middle, which some legacy books do. I think this takes you right back to what it means for Miles Morales to be Spider-Man and what makes him interesting and unique. And also the larger world of his problems, not only his personal teenage problems, but also the superhero problems that he have and how those two relate and compete for his time. I really liked it. What did you think of it? I've never really gotten into the Miles Morales books. I stopped reading Ultimate Spider-Man well before he became Spider-Man. Right. So I've never been Miles, you know, much of a Miles fan. I don't dislike him. I think he's cool. I like his costume design. I've just never really read very much of him. When he's shown up in other stuff, I thought it was good. This particular book, I agree with you. Unlike, as refer back to the last book that we just reviewed, which didn't do a new, like a legacy start. Uh, and I'll talk about this later with Captain America. I think you're you're spot on here, whereas this is a legacy book. This is a starting a new storyline, a new like direction without rebooting the character or anything, but getting back to the basics of the particular character that the book is about. Uh, I think it's really good. These The villains and the design and the person down in their base, that felt kind of ultimate-y to me. They're not ultimate characters, but they the art is drawn like I remember the Ultimate Spider-Man book was. Uh, right. The characters are all kind of they're they're classic six sixteen Marvel characters. Some of them are new versions of them. Right, like you have the female Electra, or Electro, not Electra, you know, and you the, have like a Hobgoblin and the Spot. Right, and then you also have you know some of the like the Sandman is the original Sandman that's in here, so it's yeah. a mix. You've got a a Doctor Octopus stand in in the Steel's what is it, Iron Spider and yeah. Iron Spider though. You'll notice that his costume, and Iron Spider didn't do the costume like that. The uh, series is, I think, her name, Dr. Series, uh, who I don't know if she's supposed to be like a new mad thinker or what, but he's got the costume colors on that thing are Venom. So it's like this is Miles Morales' Venom, is right. Spider-Man's old iron suit, basically. So, you know, he got out of the old suit, and then somebody else found the old suit, that person who is his uncle has a bit of a, what's the word, axe to grind with him for some yes. reason. Because they specifically say, if you really want to piss off Spider-Man, wear this. You yeah, know? and you could just feel him grin there. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I do actually have an axe to grind with Spider-Man. Yeah, I think this one does a really good job of either, in your case, introducing you to Miles and why you should care about him as a person and looping you back around to the beginning of... Ultimate Spider-Man, which is really how you get to the 246 on here, right? Yep. Um, and reminding you of this character. And so everything's coming back to the beginning here. Like, Miles Morales was a good stand-in for Peter Parker because he has a lot of the same problems that teenage Peter Parker had. All the high school problems that people have are put on display here. The All the girl troubles and not knowing if people like you and other people not knowing what's going on with you and this other girl. And if you're talking to her and where you're holding her hand, like all these things become really important to the story. And Brian Michael Bendis, like his voice is Miles Morales. Like when Bendis identifies with a character, he writes them really, really well. He does it really well with Tony Stark. He does really well with uh, Miles Morales. And you just feel the, the realness of the situation they're talking about. And that kind of contrasts with, the supervillainy stuff that's going to happen. But even the supervillains, to me, are believable people. You know, they have real problems that they're trying to solve with their crime, and they have legitimate concerns. Like, they're not stupid about it. They they see the guy offering them a huge pile of money and saying it's going to be really easy, and Sandman's like, oh, fuck no. I don't do, you know, piles of easy money that's supposed to be easy. I've done that before, and it doesn't work. Like, I've learned a thing or two. Like, I like that that the characters are realistic across the board in here. He's like, no, no, no. Every time I do this, I get fucked. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really enjoyed this one. Do we have anything more for it, or are we ready to, to uh, rate? The only, th the only thing I, I want to call out, and it's not really this book's doing, because the original Iron Spider costume had that as well, but I just realized in the, there's this really nice, not really a spread, because it's just all one page, but the last page has just this big picture panel of Aaron Davis after he takes the helmet off, and I just realized that the design of the Iron Spider suit, the middle two legs go off to the side and then to the back, and they're the actual legs in the back. 
Right. I thought that was really a neat detail that they added into there. I thought it looked really cool. Yeah, the art in here is really good. Yeah. I really liked it. So I think I will give this four gold balls. Well, actually, that's a question I have about the gold balls. Are they actually gold and do they disappear after a while? Because why isn't this guy making money? <laughs> so gold balls is one of those lame X-Men characters who can like shoot these multi-sized gold balls out of his body. He's a Grant Morrison character. Yeah, and I like that they take him in this book, and he is super ridiculous, but in the way that good heroes are, like his powers are kind of irrelevant to why he's a hero, you know? And I like that he's this super joke, but whenever a time traveler from the future comes back and meets him, they're like, oh my god, gold balls, you're so amazing. (laughs) You're the mutant savior, you know? That's fucking epic. (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, really? They're like, oh, yeah, you're a legend. So I, I like that with Gold Balls. He's an amusing character. All right. So uh, I'm going to give it four because I thought it was extremely well done, but I just don't know the character very well. So everything kind of hit its points, but it didn't excel them because I just, I'm not into it. And I might be, I'm not against it, but I'm going to give it four. We're going to steal a shield helicarrier. That's the sexiest thing. <laughs> I do I do like that where the super villainous Here's that, and you can tell when she says that, she really means it. Like, she's going to bone that dude in the back room in about three seconds. No, that was not That was Hobgoblin. Was that Still Hobgoblin possible. who said that? Yes. I thought it was the female character. Bombshell goes, huh. Electra oh. goes, um. Well, never mind. Cut that I part mean, it out, because that happen. don't make any we, sense. We don't know. No, no, it could. It could. <laughs> we don't know. We don't true, know. You know. True, true. Let's not prejudge uh, Hobgoblins. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Merch. To the merch table. We like cool comic-related stuff, and here's something we think you might like. So in line with the hit movie out this weekend, my merch of the week is is not necessarily a new thing. It's been for sale for a little bit. It's the Marvel Legends Hammer of Thor. It's a one-to-one scale replica. It takes three AAA batteries, but it makes fucking sounds, and it lights up, and it's got the symbol of Odin on the side of the thing, if you're worthy. You can get it over at thinkgeek.com. Uh, it's a badass looking thing that I want so that I could put it right at my desk at work. It just you use it like a paperweight. It would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm serious. I want to do it and just like just screw it down to the desk so that nobody could ever pick it up. But then I'd probably get in trouble. <laughs> but I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, it looks cool. Alrighty. And uh, if you want to pick one up, I'll put the link to get that item over on the uh, the show notes for this week, which you can visit at fourcolornerds.com. And read those show notes, huh? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? <laughs> your uh, your play, player probably also has the show notes in it, too, if you're listening to it. I guess. <laughs> or you could go over to our website. I guess I shouldn't work against people going to our website. I know, right? <laughs> so we're going to go back over to more Legacy. Avengers number 693 from Marvel Comics. Worlds Collides Part 3. Written by Mark Wade. Pencils and inks by Javier Pena and Paco Diaz. Colors by Rachel Rosenberg. So the Avengers and the Champions are fighting some pretty awesome Minotaur men riding dinosaurs from a parallel Earth that's on opposite sides of the sun. Normally, these two Earths are on different vibrational frequencies and they can't see each other because the sun's in the way. However, the High Evolutionary is causing the two Earths to become in tune with each other, so they're beginning to occupy the same plane of existence. And when this happens, these evolved animal creatures come into our world, and some of the Avengers and champions and, you know, regular people and everything get sucked into their world as well. And then there'll be another vibrational frequency, and things, you know, realign, and people travel from one to the other again. So they've got this timed out so they know basically when they're going to happen. So while this is all going on, these everyone's brawling with each other as they're encountering each other. Uh, Kamala uses a rarely used super technique called talking to people when they're instead of just punching them in the face. And she learns that not all of these creatures are hostile. Most of them are just as confused and frightened by what's happening as the heroes are. And they're only fighting because, you know, the Avengers and champions are attacking them. So they're fighting back. But there's also some fanatics on the side who want to bring out the cleansing that their god, the high evolutionary, is prophesied. So while Kamala is talking to some of them, One of them whips out a weapon and starts attacking people. So you find out that, you know, there are fanatics there. But you also see on the Avengers side, the event, the, you also see on the Avengers side, the vision is going to level 10 freakout mode because Viv is missing and he's trying to get her back. So he's really getting pretty desperate and violent in his attempt to get her back. 
and he has to kind of be talked back down by the other heroes, which is showing that there are fanatics on both sides of this conflict, right? That no no one side is perfect in this battle. Viv has been captured by the High Evolutionary, and she's now become one of his experiments, and he's taken her to the next iteration of herself, which we get in what Marvel's become pretty good at, which is the last panel cliffhanger reveal here. So I thought this one was really interesting. When I saw the title Worlds Collide Part 3, I thought, well, great. This is going to be one of those kind of shitty legacy books where you pick up in the middle and it doesn't really make sense. I felt like this one, even though it is part three of this story, I don't feel like I was missing anything I needed to understand this. So normally one of my main complaints would be don't start your legacy reboot right in the middle of a arc. But I think they did a really good job here of giving you an in media res start that brought you up to speed very quickly. So I really liked it. The art was rad. The story was good. I like these characters. What'd you think of it? I thought it was a pretty good book. I'm not a huge high evolutionary fan though. I did like the, there was a series that went through in the eighties, uh, the, like a high evolutionary story that hit all the annuals that year. Because back then we knew how to do events and you did them with the annual books so that they didn't fuck up the other stories and made people go, when did this happen? Because that guy's dead now. Um, but nowadays they just do the big events just in the middle of a book. The high evolutionary in this, it, he confuses me because he's, his whole thing is about evolving, but he's not really evolving. He just likes fucking with genetic codes. So like the animals he took and he makes them into humanoids, but then he takes humans and then he adds stuff to them that are, like, really literal. Like, Falcon, I'm sure he's going to give actual wings to. I mean, I think he says yeah. as much. If you look at the cover, the Falcon, the picture of him has, like, a beak face on him. That cover is actually a call-out to one of the Evolutionary War covers for, for one of the annuals. I think it was actually the Avengers annual that year. The, the cover is a beautiful, beautiful, I think it's a painted cover on this one. Yeah, uh, looks like it. Uh, like version of that with the current team that's in this story. They simplified his costume down, but I'm wondering if they're simplifying it to say that this is actually his body now and not just armor that he wore. Because back in the day, there was like the Colossus bands on the silver parts and that fin that he's got on his head was actually like this weird little kind of like handle thing that kind of looks like the clone trooper little swish thing that they had, but the other direction. So the art was really good. The story was competent i I'm, I'm just not a huge fan of big mutant animals see i thought the exact opposite i thought that this i was actually comparing this with commandy when i was thinking about it the commandy shows us a lot of animal human hybrids also and this does the same thing but these one looks so cool like i really like it like i like kind of ridiculous scenes like when you have a minotaur riding a dinosaur fighting the avengers to me that's awesome some people may look at that and say that's dumb you know, but I think it's it's epic and it's something I haven't seen before. And it's what comics to me are supposed to do. They're supposed to show you things you haven't seen before. And I thought the art on here was really good at doing that. No, I, I think the art is really good. I agree with you there. The art is really good at doing that. Uh, I just, I don't really care about high evolutionary stories. And like, Commandy, uh, listen to last week's episode, guys. You can go to our website, fourcolornerds.com. <laughs> or, you know, your feed, as Ryan will point out. Um <laughs> But uh, listen to our last episode to hear my opinions on Kamandi at this point. The whole, and it might be partly that, that I'm just a little burnt out on humanoid animals right now. The dinosaurs, them riding the dinosaurs was, I agree with you, fucking epic beyond reason. Like that scene is worth the whole book. But the story, I just, I'm like, I don't care. The parts of the story that made me really care about it really was the vision going too far in his quest to get his daughter back. Like, I thought that was really good. That that showed me the fanaticism on both sides. It made the vision... It's a relatable thing, right? You want your children back. And he was willing to go to the extreme to do that. So I thought I that part rooted me in the story. I also thought the high evolutionary, his kind of monologues were interesting. So... I thought there was enough in here, both art-wise, writing-wise, just epic badassness in here, to really make this pretty pretty good. So I, I enjoyed it. 
I think I will give it four. There are no strings on me, tying Viv back to Ultron. Well done, sir. Well done. So I'm going to give it three and a half. Besides, you're in no position to fight back. For the last 60 seconds, my nanobots have been slowly disabling your systems. See you soon, Vivian. (laughs) Poor Viv. More legacy. More legacy. More legacy. (laughs) Oh, we have to read Champions to get the next part of the story? Fuckers. Well, what we're going to do, because this is an event, is we're going to pick up, we're going to follow this arc throughout. Because this is what it's like when worlds collide? (laughs) Exactly. Alrighty, we're going to head over to, well, we're not heading over to anywhere. We're still in Marvel Comics, but we're going to head over to Captain America's part of the world with Captain America number 695, published by Marvel Comics, Home of the Brave, part one, written by Mark Wade, pencils and inks by Chris Samney, colors by Matthew Wilson. We've had some legacy books, like I said earlier, that didn't quite live up to the event title of legacy, especially last week, uh, but I felt that this issue of Captain America is a definitive legacy title. We start with a flashback of Cap right after he came out of the ice and he was fighting a terrorist group that was active and getting it start in Burlington, Nebraska. He put them down then and then rode off into the sunset, as it were, with the, to the rest of his adventures that you know we've spent all of our lives reading. He's now returned and found that they have renamed the town after him. It's literally called Captain America, Nebraska. <laughs> but the terrorist group that he was trying to put down just happens to be trying to get their start again. And he, he basically shows up and kind of kicks their asses. For what, what, is, what do they call it? Captain America Days, I think, is their festival they have. Yes. Uh, but he also teaches them some kind of wholesome Captain America feely lessons and discovers that not everybody has forgotten about him or felt that, you know, he kind of turned to the dark side. I mean, I would hope a town called Captain America would definitely back Captain America, but some of them don't believe in, like, literally all of the legend. There's a little bit of kind of conspiracy theory thoughts going on in here. Oh, you're an icer. (laughs) Yes. I thought that was just badass, but it was smart. I mean, it's what I expect out of Mark Wade writing Captain America. I think Mark Wade is kind of like the Tom King of Captain America. He gets the character and he writes it really well. And I think that Samney's art in this book fits for Captain America because Captain America is supposed to be like this kind of simple, but well done, awesome, clear kind of thing that is just like, this is what we get behind when we're talking about America. We're not talking about all this other shit that it seems to always stand for or or get stood up for, but it's basically you're bigger than that kid. You protect that kid. I'm bigger than you, I will protect you, but I'm not going to go be an asshole. Yeah, I think this one was really, really good for a legacy title. Like, first of all, the art just fits with Captain America. Like, it seems almost like a throwback art style in a way, and that really reminds me a lot of, if you're familiar with the Tim Sale books, like Daredevil Yellow, Spider-Man Blue, Captain America White, Hulk Gray... Those books, that's what this art looks like. And I think that the tone of this book is really spot on for Captain America because it's, like you're saying, it's a very wholesome, without being cheesy or unaware of the danger that's going on, book that these are just the kind of moral lessons that your grandpa would teach you when he wasn't being racist, you know? Like, (laughs) (laughs) these are the kind of the good truths from like the 40s and 50s that the strong protect the weak, that that's... That's what you do. I liked the way that they looped back the of him protecting that little girl the first time around, and then that little girl showing up again as you know a much older, uh, like teenage or early twenties uh, woman later, remembering those same lessons. I liked when he pointed out that he wasn't the only one fighting when he pointed out the people who ran through like literal laser blasts to go and do first aid on someone, or you know people everyone being heroic. Like it really reminded me of the Mr. Rogers saying that when you, when bad things happen, look for the helpers. That's really what this book reminded me of that when bad things happen, everyone pitches in and does what they can to, to save their fellow Americans. And I thought that was a really good Captain America book. And uh, it's the Tim sale. I can definitely see what you're saying there. It does look very much like a kind of the Tim sale. It also gave me a little bit of a Darwin cook feel. Mm -hmm. It's the classic. Yes. Like, 60s but modern art that looks really good in some of these like classic characters like Captain America. I just I thought it was that kind of square jawed, almost like uh, when not Batman the animated series, but when Superman had its animated series around the same time. Looks like that art a lot. That well, they're about the same art guy. Yeah, 
they just did Batman a little bit darker. Paul Dini? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. I was very, very satisfied with this book. And it, it like I said, it, it lives up to legacy. I agree. Especially after what we've, you know, had for Captain America for quite a while. So. I think both sides are important. I think both are telling, you know, good stories. I think this one is more, I think the, the last run of Captain America was a warning and this is an aspirational, like, we can be better, let's do better, you know? So I'm going to give it four and a quarter, we know what's right, the strong protect the weak. Never forget that. Oh, that's exactly what I was going to use. So I will give it four and a half, that's the rule. Welcome back. So still with Legacy, we've got Iron Fist number 74 from Marvel Comics, Sabretooth Round 2, written by Ed Brisson, Pencils and Inks by Mike Perkins, Colors by Andy Troy. So the battle for Kunlun has Sabretooth and Iron Fist teaming up to find the lost book of the Iron Fist and find out who's been impersonating the Constrictor. The battle for Kunlun has Sabretooth and Iron Fist team up to find the lost book of the Iron Fist and find out who's been impersonating the Constrictor. We get plenty of bar brawls with Z-list villains as they investigate the trail. A group of Kung Fu baddies, Chosin and the Rat of Twelve Plagues, are also on the trail for the Book of the Iron Fist. And in a series of negotiations and betrayals with the Serpent Society and led by the new Constrictor, we get all three groups, Iron Fist and Sabretooth, the Serpent Society, and Chosin and the Rat of Twelve Plagues converging in a super brawl cliffhanger at the end. So this one, I have good things to say about it and I have bad things to say about it. So I'll kind of start with the good. I thought that, first of all, the Rat of Twelve Plagues, that is a really awesome character design. Like he's so creepy and almost tragic and horrific. I really thought that was, to me, that was the standout of the book. I liked Sabretooth in the bar battling people. I liked Z-Listers mouthing off to him and him just stomping them. I thought that was pretty cool and kind of ties back to that we like the Z-List villains in their bars trying to scheme and plot and having real problems with you know heroes coming into the bar i like the idea of Sabretooth wanting to protect the legacy of a villain which i thought was really interesting because normally we see that with the heroes like how dare dr doom take iron man's armor and you know be stomping all over his legacy and here you see Sabretooth having the same thoughts about a villain i thought that was interesting. Like I said, I really liked the Rat of Twelve Plagues. I thought he was interesting. The one thing that I didn't really like and that I felt if you removed from this book would be almost exactly the same was actually Iron Fist. I felt like he was almost a non-entity in his own book, which to me is really bad for your own book. Like, it's an interesting story. I like what was going on. The art is kind of dirty and fits in with this underworld thing they're doing, but there's almost no Iron Fist in here. He just basically stands there and watches Sabretooth do stuff. I don't really feel like this emphasized who Iron Fist is, why I should care about him. Almost none of that is in here. So that, to me, was a failure. What did you think about it? So I really actually liked it. It's a kung fu story, basically. It's like a kung fu movie. It's got a lot of street-level crime. Yep. While there's superhero, or well, supervillains mostly in this book. Well, there's supervillains throughout this. They don't really emphasize costumes much in the story. It's got the stuff like the the bar with no name, which I love the concept that there's bars for like supervillains and superheroes to go to. I, just like there's Clark's Bar in the DC Universe, and I think in the Wildstorm Universe had Clark's Bar in it too, just as kind of a nod. But they, I, I just love that concept that they are just people, and sometimes they want to go to a pub, but you, you can't just go to a regular bar because nobody else is going to be able to, you're not going to be able to talk to them because you're like, yeah, I just kicked Spider-Man's ass, or I got my ass kicked by Spider-Man. You say that in the middle of a regular bar, and people are going to be like, what the fuck? It's like the same reason you have like cop bars or firefighter bars. There are some jobs or profession that make you so different from other people that the only people who can understand you complaining about your job are other people who do that job, right? Right. You just picture these guys walking there and go, capes, am I right? <laughs> exactly. But also, like we were talking earlier, how like having the, like in the Batman book, where they're talking about the greater tapestry of the world with other details going on the saber tooth going after constrictors legacy is just perfect and spot on and he's just a dude basically like he does things sometimes they're bad things sometimes they're not quite so bad things he's not two-dimensional they make a really good three-dimensional saber tooth character saber tooth actually is not originally a Wolverine character. He is an Iron Fist character. He got his start in an Iron Fist book so I, I felt that it's good to have him in this and Historically, Iron Fist 
And I don't want to give any props at all to that fucking TV show. I, I have still not been able to make it all the way through it, but Iron Fist isn't really the first thing that you see in an Iron Fist book. He's the character, like the quiet kind of character that when he needs to, he bursts out and he kicks ass. But a lot of Iron Fist stories are the world around him that's going on. I do agree with you, though, that they, they went a little bit too far into the world around him instead of him being the character. He's literally like the sidekick, the saber tooth in this story. Yes. And he needs to be a little bit more, it, it needs to be a little bit more Iron Fist centered in the, in this book, maybe quite a bit more. The rest of it was really good tapestry, but it maybe stretched this issue's story out a little bit further into maybe two books and have Iron Fist have a little bit more input into the story because it's, it's not theirs, it's his. And they've loaded a, a lot of this into here, but they didn't load a lot of him into there. Like, I think what would have really fixed this book is they're talking about the lost book of the Iron Fist and about this battle for Kunlun that's going to take place. Not once does Iron Fist tell us what Kunlun is, why it's important, and why it needs to be saved. You know, you could have just had, you know, Sabretooth being, doing something like, well, this is, why are we even doing all this? You know, and then he could explain why, you know, but none of that happens. So it was a cool, you know, low level crime romp. And I really enjoyed that part of it, but I didn't really feel like it really lived up to the Iron Fist legacy from my point of view. Right. And, and I, I agree. The parts that Danny spoke up and was there were really good. That, that should key you into, we need more of that. If, if, if he was just a little bit more present in his own book, it would have been a really great book because it's a really good crime story. It's a really good kung fu story. The mm -hmm. art is really good. The fights are really good. It works except Danny. Yeah. I think in the end, I will give it 2.75 Rat of 12 Plagues. I'm not going to go that low, but I'll go kind of close. I'm going to give it three. All right, Serpent Society, time to protect our investment. <laughs> all right all right so now for pull pass or complain about it on the internet so first up we've got batman the devastator number one from dc comics symphony of destruction written by frank thierry and james tinney in the fourth pencils by tony s daniels inks by danny mika colors by tomo more pull pass or complain matt complain i didn't like this book pull i'm really <laughs> tired <laughs> I will pull it. I thought it was pretty good. All right, next we have The Gravediggers Union, number one, by Image Comics, written by Wes Craig, pencils and inks by Wes Craig and Toby Cypress, colors by Nico Guardia. Guardia? I don't know. What did you think about it? I'm torn between pass and complaining about it on the internet. I really? I think it's a bad BPRD ripoff. I think it was a good BPRD ripoff. <laughs> so you're going to pull it? <laughs> I'm going to pull it. I, I actually liked it, but I agree with you that it is a BPRD ripoff. All right. Still in over to DC, we've got Dead Man number one from DC Comics. Still dead after all these years. Written by Neil Adams. Art by Neil Adams. Pull, <sighs> pass, or complain on the internet. I'm somewhere between, ironically enough, I'm somewhere between pass and complain about it on the internet. I didn't like this book. I, I appreciated what they were trying to do here, but I don't fucking care. I appreciate Neil Adams, but again, I don't like this book. I will complain about this on the internet. This was fucking terrible. Incomprehensible, uninteresting, and I like Deadman as a character, so I just really, yeah, you all complain about this all day long. I didn't like it. So the last one is Power Pack number 64, Marvel Comics, Rarely Pure and Never Simple, written by Devin Grayson, pencils and inks by Marika Cresta, colors by Chris O'Halloran. Yeah, Halloran. What'd you think about it? I... Hmm. I'm, I say if you like Power Pack, pull this. If you're neutral on Power Pack or don't like them, pass on it. It's okay, but you really have to like Power Pack. I agree. I'm mostly towards, and, and this is sad because I, I forced this one onto the, the list because I, I did like Power Pack and I thought we were going to get a, good, a new story. You don't. This is just a callback to an old story, so I'm going to pass. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. So for this upcoming week, we've got Daredevil, number 595, Moon Knight, number 188, and She-Hulk, number 159. And on the pull pass or complain about it on the internet, we've got Batman Lost, number one, Marvel Kung Fu, number 126. Master of Kung Fu. What did I say? You said Marvel of Kung Fu. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> That's ironic because it's a Marvel book. Okay. Master of Kung Fu, number 126. All righty. So that was the world of comics for this week. 
You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast on original streaming media, Cut the Cord, at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate. Review. And subscribe. And be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds!